So uh, a wise congregant, and uh, for the record, that would describe everyone in the congregation. Uh, a wise congregant uh, once described to me what he calls the 100-shirt principle. And it, it goes like this. Uh, when you get home and you have a free moment or two, I want you to go look in your closet. And uh, then I want you to begin to tally up all of the shirts and, and sweaters that you have, the work, the casual, athletic, just add them all up. And safe to say, uh, it's probably, your final number will be probably close to or well over 100. And there's no chance, and I mean there's no chance that you will ever wear all of those shirts over the next six months. There's absolutely no chance. In other words, the 100 shirt principle is a principle of wealth. That we can now afford to have homes with space to store things that we don't need. And we can afford to buy things that we don't need. By the way, it's also the root of the terms blue and white collar. Blue collar people or blue collar workers had darker color shirts because they were poor. And presumably they couldn't buy changes of clothes. And the dark color would hide the shirt, the dirt, and the stains. White collar, white collar workers needed washing and changing daily. Something that people who had money could afford to do. But before the First World War, most homes had clothing closets that were less than a foot deep. Think about that. And they had at most two to four hooks. One for your weekday clothes and one for your Sunday clothes. But don't take my word for it. Amble to now to uh, over to one of the now rapidly disappearing pre-Second World bungalows that are just south or just west of where the shul is and go and take a look at the closets in the bedrooms. In fact, go take a look at the closets in the master bedroom that was shared presumably by two people. Now, go take a look at the closet spaces in a recently built home which all shows us what wealth can do. It can help us buy things that we know, and wealth can help us buy places to put those things that we also know too. But there's another thing that wealth buys, and it's not such an obvious thing, because the other thing that wealth buys is seen in our cities, in our transportation, and in our recreation. We have private planes and elite lounges and gated communities Big cars all allow us distance from each other. And that distance that we have from one another creates a unique and different perspective on how the world looks and how we live in it. So think of this. The next time that you're on a plane and you look down through the window, the cars look like shiny dots, the highways look like black ribbons, everything looks so pristine and clean, like a brand new toy. But when the plane gets closer to the ground, you actually start seeing that the cars aren't all shiny, and the streets now have potholes, and the ground isn't that clean. And that is what distance actually creates. Distance creates a different and distorted picture of how things are. It breaks off our ability to feel what the world really is. And I'm talking about all kinds of distance, not just the kinds that you experience in an airplane. So a few months back, the New York Times had a beautiful multimedia online presentation on apartments. 
apartments. Now, I know that apartments aren't the most exciting thing to read about, but actually it was. The program, which might still be online on their website, takes you through the history of apartment buildings, which is actually the history of living in cities. Because people build apartments when space is limited. And when you need to get as many people as possible into the least amount of space, when you can't go right and you can't go left, the only choice you have is to go up. Actually, what was interesting is that today the most expensive units are the ones that are the highest because you get the best views. But even just a few hundred years ago, apartments that were on the higher floors were the cheaper ones because they were also the most dangerous. The floors could come crashing down at any time, pancaking, pancaking from the top down. The picture showed us that in the urban world today, the poorer people, people are the ones who are more closely crammed in with one another. Shacks built on top of each other. The tenements of the Lower East Side, the apartment slums of Rio, Lagos, or Guangzhou, all share a common thread. And that is, poor people are crammed in together, and if you have money, you have distance. If you don't have money, the world lives on top of you. So our blessing is a blessing of space. And not just physical space, but the kind of space that hasn't been seen by many people before in all of human history. It is a space we get from working remotely, from music devices that plays music that no one else can hear but us, from the quiet and privacy that we get from our cars. The distance that we get from other people is the space that allows you to be an individual. But consider that the entire history of human life has been the history of people needing and relying and being close to each other in order to survive. From hunter-gatherers to tribes and families, Everyone relied on the closeness we had in order to survive because you couldn't survive without each other. So is it really a surprise that the traditions surrounding both Jewish life and death are so deeply embedded in community in and with other people? That a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah is only held in the presence of a minion of a Jewish community. When someone passes away, we open our homes and we let the world in to comfort us. And the logic beneath it is a simple one. The loss of our loved one or the celebration that we have in our life is not just ours, but it should be felt by all those who are close to us. There is a little-known tradition in Jewish thought that says that the Yamin Nori'im, the High Holy Days, don't actually begin on Rosh Hashanah and end on Yom Kippur. No, according to this tradition, this sacred period actually begins on Tisha B'Av, the fast day, the ninth day of Av, that commemorates the destructions of the temples in Jerusalem, and that it concludes on Sukkot. And you know, on the surface, little could seem more incongruent, more unlike each other. I mean, Tisha B'Av is the day that we remember great pain, and not just the temples, but the Jewish calendar on that day is filled with a bizarre twilight zone-like gravity to that day. On the ninth day of Av, on Tisha B'Av, we mark attacks and expulsions and decrees over the course of many centuries that all seem to fall on that very same day. 
Tishabab, we are told, is the day that the walls of the temple came down and exposed us to exile and wandering, the beginning of our collective pain. So from Tishabab, the moment when the walls came down, we moved to Rosh Hashanah, the Yom Kippur, and finally today, Sukkot. Because in Sukkot, we also mark the tearing down of the walls. We leave our homes for the outdoors. The sukkah, by tradition, must not have a solid roof. Its walls should be sufficient enough to stand against a moderate gust. But it is not a home. And it's not meant to be one. So much so that the ancient rabbi specified that it should be ke'in, like your home, like, but it is not. That we should eat and socialize and study in it. But no one will ever confuse your sukkah for your home. On Sukkot, it seems to me that we tear down our walls and head outside. You know, a reflective interpretation might say, if you're a Buddhist, I think, that you only have a home when you realize that you really don't have one. That forever we're in a great sea of being on a journey where there is no home. But today I see something else. Tishabav and Sukkot both mark moments of walls being torn down. But if Tishabav is the time that we mourn when others tore our walls, on Sukkot we celebrate that we are tearing them down. On Sukkot we celebrate the closeness, the closing of distance. On Sukkot we celebrate closeness. Outside of our windows and our walls and our carpets and our heating systems, we discover our common weaknesses and our common sameness. In other words, you know, in Judaism, we treasure words so much that you might think that you could get and create a righteous person out of a book. And yet from the beginning of the Bible, Judaism teaches us that laws come to life through people. That role models speak louder than rules. There's a story told of the first chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, Solomon Schechter, who famously explained to an incoming student and future chancellor, Louis Finkelstein, that the purpose of coming to a seminary was not to learn facts or laws, that he could learn them anywhere. The purpose was to study with great people. In all my years as a student, I cherish less what I learned than about the people with whom I studied with. These teachers and people were not perfect, but they were passionate and they were learned, they were eccentric, and they brought tradition to life. And to the extent that the Internet and long-distance learning deprive us of being in the presence of kind and scholarly people, it will be a tremendous loss. So when Martin Buber, the philosopher, tells the story of a chassid who travels hundreds of miles to see how his master teacher ties his shoes, he was expressing the same idea, that what you can learn from a great teacher cannot be put into a book because it is in a look, an inflection, a quirk of personality, a tossed-off comment. The greatest human lessons are found in the power of presence. To do this requires not distance, but closeness. And Judaism's great call is to ever bring us closer and not further from one another. Chag Sameach.